The year was 1839. Fifty-four slaves on the ship La Armistad were shackled and bound underneath the hull of the ship. The ship was sailing along just north of Cuba to its final destination when one slave by the name of Sinke was able to free himself from his shackles. He then freed the rest of the slaves on the slave ship. They, they took over the ship, killing several of the crew, but saving enough crew to command the ship to go back to Africa, to sail the ship back to Africa. Well, Sinke and his fellow slaves were not seafaring people, and unfortunately for them, the navigator of the ship ended up going north up to the Atlantic coast. Just outside of New York, the ship was seized by American Navy vessel. All of the slaves were taken prisoner and charged with piracy and murder and given the death penalty. Well, they would go on trial in Connecticut, and it would be the trial of the century. At one point in the trial, Sin Kay, who spoke no English but knew just enough to make a point, stood up with his hands shackled, and he started saying these words, Give us us free. Give us us free. And then he just started chanting, give us free, give us free, at which time the armed guards in the room were ready to shoot him, and he sat down. Here's what's interesting about the case. As I said, it was a trial of the century. People would be paying money to come see what was going to happen. The case would eventually go to the Supreme Court, where they would make an astonishing decision on the side of the slaves. They were repatriated back to Sierra Leone. And people still talk about this trial today, all because one man named Sinke had it in his heart that he wanted freedom, that he was tired of bondage and wanted freedom. Give us free. Have you ever considered that all of us, all of us have a yearning deep in our heart for freedom? That we're all in bondage to something or someone? But have you also considered that there's only one who can truly give us free? Such is what we're going to talk about today. In fact, if you get anything at all out of today's teaching, get this. There is no obstacle too big for Jesus to give us free. There's no obstacle in our lives. There's nothing so heinous we've done that Jesus, if we come to him and just say, Jesus, I need you, help me, forgive me, that he won't forgive you. There's nothing so big and so bad. There's no obstacle too great. For Jesus to give us free. Well, God's got a lot to say about that as we hit week three of our series called Meals with Jesus. It's in this series in which we're looking at a handful of conversations in the gospel accounts between Jesus and someone else or others around the master's table. Today's story is a story of a non-Jewish woman who has a daughter who's demon-possessed, and she comes to Jesus it's a great conversation. I'm excited about teaching it today. So our story is found in Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 7. I've chosen the Matthew 15 account because it has a lot more detail than the Mark account. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew 15. Let me set the scene for what's going on. Okay, whenever we look at Scripture, we need to, to pull back from being Westerners in the 21st century and try to go sit in the sandals of the people who are, are the intended audience of whatever that letter is or that scripture is. So Matthew is, is a Jewish tax collector. He becomes a disciple of Jesus. Pastor Bob talked about that last week. And his intended audience 
Well, it's the Jewish people. And his primary purpose of his gospel is to show that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David. We're going to see that happening today. So if you go back with me, 2,000 years ago, Jesus goes to the cross, he dies, he's buried, and he's resurrected. Now, before that, he has a three-year earthly ministry. Our story picks up about halfway through, a year and a half into that three-year earthly ministry. Jesus has done a lot of things in that year and a half. Uh, He's turned water into wine. He's healed a bunch of people. He's just, before this story, fed 5,000 men, which is really about 20,000 people, with five loaves of bread and two fish. He's walked on water and pulled Peter out of the water and thrown him back into the boat. And now... Jesus is going to have a conversation, and that conversation is with the Pharisees. And I need you to give me some grace here because it takes a a few minutes to set up our story with this amazing non-Jewish woman. Okay, so here we go. The the Pharisees come to Jesus in Matthew chapter 15, verse 2, and they ask him this question. They say, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Well, some of you parents might be saying, hey, my kid's the same way. Help me out with this, Jesus. But there's an issue here. And the issue here goes back, go back 500 years before uh, this story. The Israelites are sent into slavery into Babylon for 70 years. They come back from Babylon, and the the Jewish leaders start adding a bunch of traditions and man-made rules to God's Mosaic law that he had given them a thousand years before that. They made it so difficult that the people couldn't abide by the law. One of those crazy rules was how you washed your hands. Now, it made sense to wash your hands before you eat. It, it, It helps to prevent infections. I mean, we know that today. But back in that time, the religious leaders got goofy with it. For example, in order to be clean, to have your hands clean so you could eat, you would have to dip your hands in the water several times. You'd take your hands out of the water, and the water would have to drip down your elbows. Now, you couldn't just shake your hands off. You had to dry them off on a specific type of towel with a specific type of fabric that was woven together. And so... The, the, the Pharisees approach Jesus and say, hey, your disciples aren't doing this. And Jesus says, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. Don't you understand that you're more concerned about the traditions of man rather than being devoted to God? So he sets them and the disciples straight. So after he spanks the Pharisees, he mansplains, son of man explains to them what being clean and unclean really is about. As I said, we're setting up our story today. So look at this. Skip down to verses 17 through 20. Jesus said, don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart, and these are the things that make a man unclean. For out of the heart come, look at this, look at this, evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands, that doesn't make him unclean. So now to our story. The Jewish people believe that if, if you came in contact with a Gentile, a Gentile is any non-Jewish person. So whenever I refer to the Gentiles, I'm referring to non-Jewish people. The Jewish people believe that if you came in contact with a non-Gentile person, you were unclean. Being unclean was a, a big deal. If you were unclean, that means you couldn't have contact with any, anyone else. Who's, who's Jewish. You could not even go to the synagogue and worship. You couldn't worship God if you were unclean. You'd have to go through the ceremonial purification rites. So thinking of that and keeping that in mind, our story picks up 
with Jesus having this conversation with the Pharisees, and I think he's tired and I think he's frustrated. He's frustrated that his own people are not understanding what he's saying. So he's going to teach his disciples a lesson, and he's going to give us a lesson on what it means to truly be unclean versus what it means to be clean. He's at his headquarters in Capernaum, and he grabs his disciples, and they're going to go to the coast. They're going to go north 40 miles to Gentile territory. It's the only time in Scripture in which we see Jesus leave Israel proper and spend some time in Gentile territory. He's going to do some things in this story today and some other things. He's taking him into Gentile territory to prove a point. Now, remember our main point. There's no obstacle too big for Jesus to give us free. You guys ready to go? Welcome to the master's table. Verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Okay, well, hang on just a second. Let's talk about Tyre and Sidon. Jesus leaves leaves clean country and goes to unclean country, Gentile country. Tyre and Sidon, uh, for... I don't know, a thousand years before this, they were friends of Israel. But over time, they became enemies of Israel. They were a place of great immorality. It was kind of like Las Vegas in the Middle East. It was always said, you know, you could say, what goes on in Tyre and Sidon stays in Tyre and Sidon. No Jewish man would ever go up to Tyre and Sidon. On top of that, no Jewish rabbi would ever set foot in Tyre and Sidon. Now, the people of Tyre and Sidon, they know the Jewish customs because of that long-term relationship, either good or bad, with the Israelites. And the people of Tyre and Sidon, guaranteed, they will have heard about Jesus because, as I said, for a year and a half, he's been doing some crazy things. Jesus is not your average day rabbi. Let's keep on going. Verse 22. A Canaanite woman, Canaanite, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. Okay, let's, let's stop. Remember that in Matthew's gospel, his audience is the Jewish audience. So he calls this woman a Canaanite woman. Uh, the Canaanites are long-term enemies of Israel. In the Mark gospel account, she's known as a Syrophoenician woman because Mark's account looks at, at, at the, the Greco-Roman audience, which would recognize that as a political area, Tyre and Sidon. So first of all, she's a Canaanite woman, so enemy of Israel. Then she says, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. When she says son of David, she's recognizing Jesus as the Messiah. Anytime you would refer to the son of David, you're pointing to the Messiah. So she's saying, you've got authority over me, Jesus. You are the son of David. Have mercy on me. She recognizes Jesus as the Messiah. Well, back in 2004, Mel Gibson released The Passion of the Christ. Probably all of you have seen it, or most of you have seen it. A very graphic detail of Jesus' last week and his crucifixion. It's a great movie, and my family and I were stationed in South Korea wrapping up our first assignment at that time. And back then, we didn't have Netflix. So what would happen is you'd get an American movie, and it would come out on the military base, so we'd get to go see it. Everybody went to see The Passion of the Christ. And I remember Monday morning at our staff meeting, my boss who I don't think was a Christian. He was a great guy, but he made a very, very interesting and important comment. As everybody's talking about it, he says, listen, guys, here's the deal. This is what's important about this movie. The important thing is how you understand Jesus. Is he a good teacher or is he the Messiah, the son of David? And that's a great question for us. How do you, do, how do you view Jesus? Is he a good teacher or is he 
is he your savior? See, a good teacher, you can take some of his teachings and you can have some positive impact in your life and the life of those around you. But if you want radical change, Jesus has to be your savior. He has to be the Messiah. He has to be the son of David where you come and say, son of David, have mercy on me. Back to the woman because that's what she says. Let's continue on in this verse. She continues and she says, my daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. My daughter's suffering terribly. Some of your, your translations say, my, my daughter is cruelly suffering from demon possession. She just wants her kid to be healed. So many of you parents get, the, get this. You would crawl naked through glass for miles to have your kid healed. She's begging and crying out for her daughter's life. What she did, did took guts because she has a lot of obstacles to go through. Let's cover some of those obstacles. First of all, obstacle number one is her nationality. She's a Canaanite. She, she's an enemy of Israel. Number two, she's a female in a very misogynist society. So really, her rights are limited greatly. Add to that, she's a Gentile. She's not Jewish, and she's approaching a Jewish rabbi who would never talk to a non-Jewish person, especially a non-Jewish woman. Fourthly, Satan's against her. Satan has, has, has possessed her daughter with demons. And then last but not least, it looks like the disciples and even Jesus are against her. Guys, I have struggled with this passage for so many years. And the reason why I wanted to preach it is God, God has made it pretty clear what this passage is really about. And so I hope you get to glean some of that. So let's keep on going. Verses 23 and 24. Jesus didn't answer a word. Remember, she's saying, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter's demon possessed. She's saying it over and over and over. So his disciples come to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered. He's answering the disciples, not the woman. I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Okay, rude. Uh, I'm trying to, to, I look at this going, "What, what the heck? What's going on here? Now, the disciples are saying, stop her. She's like a dripping faucet. This ministry gig would be great if it weren't for all these unclean sinners. And we, we consistently see them do that, trying to block people who need to get to Jesus. And it's a, a lesson for us in the church because we can often try to, to block those kind of people who truly need Jesus. So the disciples are saying, shut her up. Now, remember, Jesus has gone into this region of Tyre and Sidon to give his disciples a lesson. So he doesn't look at the woman. He looks at them and says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. I'm going to talk some theology for a couple of minutes. We often forget that Jesus went first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. He did. If you go back to the the, the early chapters of the book of Genesis. God has a covenant, a promise with Abraham. And he says, I'm going to make you a father of many nations. Your offspring will, will, will be as many as the sand and the seashore. And God blesses Abraham greatly. He chooses Abraham from which the Hebrew nation comes. Now, the Hebrew nation, the Jewish people, are, are, are supposed to be a light to the world. Salvation would come through the Jewish people. The Messiah would come from the Jewish people. He would be in the line of Judah, from the line of David. Guess what? That's where Jesus comes from on his earthly side. All of the disciples, the original disciples, the original, the original disciples, 12 minus 1, 11, were all Jewish. 
the apostle Paul steps on the scene. He's a Jewish Pharisee. He ends up writing nearly half the New Testament. And Paul has a conversion to Jesus. And, and, and he would say, I, I go first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. He would go to the synagogue wherever he went first to preach. And then he would go to the non-Jewish people, the Gentiles. Why is that important? Because God is not done with Israel. There's some really bad theology out there called replacement theology. And what replacement theology means is that God is done with Israel. He's never going to talk to them again. He's shaken the dust of his sandals off on them, and he's walking away from them. And that's very dangerous. It contradicts what Jesus is saying right here. You have to take huge chunks of the New Testament and throw them out the window if you believe that replacement theology. God is not done with Israel. You'd have to take out Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. You've got to take the whole book of Revelation and rip it out and throw it away if you believe that. So Jesus, Jesus is saying, he's reminding his disciples that he came at the crux of salvation history, primarily, not exclusively, but primarily for the Jewish people, and they wouldn't get it. And he also came for the non-Jewish people. That's why he's in Gentile country. He's, he, he's got to prove a point about this unclean versus clean. And what's sad is mo, more often than not, the insiders, the Jewish leaders specifically, they wouldn't get it. It would be the outsiders, the people on the fringe who would get it. Okay, so that background sets up the discourse now between this woman and Jesus. And her wit, her position of argument would make some of the, the, uh, the best law school professors drool because she's amazing how she talks and what she says. Verse 25. The woman came and knelt, knelt, underline that circle, it put stars around it before him. Lord, help me, she said. She sees that Jesus doesn't even give her the time of day. Okay, you guys know I like to Greek out, I like to geek out. We're going to Greek out, geek out on this word, word knelt. The word knelt is very important. In Greek, it's praskineo, praskineo. What praskineo means is not only to, to go down on your knees, it doesn't mean to be like you're going to wash the floor. You go down on your knees to worship something or someone. She's already said, son of, son of David, have mercy on me. So she's recognizing Jesus as, her, as the authority in her life. Now she's throwing herself on her knees. She kneels in front of Jesus as her savior, not just a good teacher. She's desperate for her kid to be healed. She's unclean and she's got the epitome of cleanliness in front of her. And she kneels in front of him. Man, many of you guys get this. If you got a sick kid, if you're at the end of your rope, whatever the case may be, you're on your knees and you're saying, Jesus, please help me. And you would probably walk away from your faith if you heard the words that Jesus says to this woman. As I said, I've struggled with this story for many years, but it's amazing. Verse 26. Now he's talking to her. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. <laughs> Wait, what? It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. What kind of tyrant would say this to a woman who's begging? He, he, he can heal her daughter right there. And he's like, no, I can't throw, throw my food to the dogs. 
Where's the compassionate Jesus that we know and love? Well, hold on just a second. Don't throw the baby out of the manger and into the street because there's more to the story than this. That's not the character of Jesus. Go back to Jesus' argument with the Pharisees. Remember, he's talking about uh, what it means to be unclean and being clean. And what he's going to show us is that unclean isn't about heritage. It's not about the kosher food you eat. Unclean is not about the appearance of your body. It's about the condition of your heart. It's not about the appearance of your body. It's the condition of your heart. Jesus is teaching his disciples something important about why he came for everyone. It's a lesson in life. It's a lesson in love. It's a lesson about the story of the gospel and grace. So Jesus calls her a dog. Okay, as I said, we always have to go back to the cultural and historical context. We don't want to look at this from 21st century Western society. So back in Jesus' culture, in the Jewish culture in that time, dogs were looked as scavengers. You want to insult somebody, you call them a dog. You would never have a dog as a pet, but however... In the Greco-Roman culture, you could have dogs as pets. In fact, you, would, you could have a, 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 a puppy or a small dog in your house. So that, that happened frequently in the Greco-Roman culture. Remember, she's not Jewish. So here's what would happen in the Greco-Roman culture. You have this big table. And at the head of the table, you'd have the father. Now, around the table, you would have the kids and maybe the wife if they have a servant. The servant would come or the wife would come and serve the father first. All the food would be put around his plate and they would feed the children from there. And you guys know the deal. If there's a little dog, uh, the kids are gonna start throwing some food to the dogs. Verse 26, verse 26. Jesus replied, let's go back to it. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. It's not right to take the children, children, that's, it's, that's Israel, the clean people's bread, and toss it to the unclean Gentiles. And I think Jesus is doing one, one or two things right here. He's either testing this woman or he's teasing this woman. Let's look at this. If he's testing her, he says, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Verse 27 She says, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Even the dogs eat the crumbs. Okay, wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. We got a Greek out. We got a a geek out on this one. Dogs. The word for dog in Greek is kuon. Think think kujo, but kuon. Okay, kuon. That's not the word she uses. The word she uses is kunarion. Kunarion means a little dog or a puppy. Wouldn't be... Strange to have a small dog or a puppy at the table. So if he's testing her, she passes the test. She says, yeah, Lord, I get it. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Even unclean Gentiles, dogs in the eyes of the Jewish people, but puppies in the arms of Jesus could get the scraps from the father's table. But what if, what if, what if? What if Jesus is teasing her? What if, there's a, a teasing her, I mean, not like na 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 but He sees that she picks up what he's putting down. He sees that she is getting this. Remember, he's teaching the disciples. What if Jesus, with a smile on his face and a glimmer in his eye, speculation, but what if he says this? Let's go back to verse 26. So tech booth, can our amazing volunteer in the tech booth go back to 
Verse 26, please. Side note, guys, if you want to volunteer for us, we, we got a great spot on your team, on our team. Just come and volunteer and be in our tech booth. Okay, so we got verse 26 going. Here we go. What if Jesus, uh, yeah, what if Jesus replied with a smile on his face, you know what? It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. And then she says, verse 27, she picks up on it. Yes, Lord, but you know what? Not even the dogs, not even the puppies, but, but even the puppies eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Whether it's a test or whether it's a tease, she gets it right. Even unclean Gentiles deserve food from the master. Even the master has enough food for everyone. The master has enough grace for everyone. The master has enough grace for everyone. Folks, do not miss this. This is the impact of the story. She's coming to Jesus. She's screaming for her child's life. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed. She kneels in front of him. And don't miss this. She owns it. She owns it. It's as if she's saying, Jesus, I get it. You came first for your Israeli kids. You came first for your Jewish kids. I get it. I'm not even fit to come to your table, but I know you. I know you have enough grace and enough goodness to even throw me a bone here. Jesus, please, 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 I'm on my knees. Take care of me. Take care of my daughter. Jesus, give us free. Do you see how countercultural cultural this is to our thinking and the disciples' thinking? Think about this, 21st century Western culture. We, we say, hey, if I want to go to the master's table, all I have to do is do a bunch of good works. He was a good man. She was a good woman. Therefore, she's in heaven. That's not how it works. You know, the, the Pharisees, the disciples, all believe that if you obey the law, that means you're clean and you can come to the master's table. Jesus is like, no, you guys are missing the point. The point is, I've got enough grace for everyone, but you need to humble yourself and get on your knees before you can come to the master's table. And I got plenty of grace and plenty of food for everyone. Timothy Keller, in his, uh, his commentary on this passage, he said these words. He said, it's not until she admits that she's not fit for the master's table until she is fit for the master's table the Jewish leadership wouldn't understand it. He came first for the Jews and they don't get it. And now the Gentiles and she gets it. And I think Jesus got such great encouragement. He shows up to Tyre and Sidon and he has to be tired and discouraged. His people aren't getting it. Now he comes here and here's this woman who gets it. So he answers her, verse 28. He answers her, woman, you've got great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. I always tend to skip over that first part. I go, okay, the daughter was healed. I got to get through that so I can get through my Bible reading plan for the year. Don't skip over this. First of all, he says to her, woman. It's not like he's saying, woman, make me a sandwich. Get me a beer. It's not that tone of voice. 
He says it that way, this way in a couple other places where it's like woman. It's dear woman. Go back a year and a half before this. His first great miracle is at Cana. He's at a wedding in Cana. His mom, Mary, is like a wedding planner. She's a close friend of the families probably. They run out of wine and she comes to Jesus and says, son, we got a big problem. They've run out of wine. And in that time and in that culture, that was a huge faux pas. And Jesus looks at his mom and says, woman, dear woman, it's not my time. My time hasn't come. Jesus was always looking towards the cross. He was always focused on the cross. He didn't say, woman, my time hasn't come. Get away from me. Dear woman, fast forward three years. The epitome of clean Jesus is on the cross. He looks down at his, his dear disciple friend, John, and says to him, John, this is your mother. Mary, Jesus' mother, is next to John. And then she looks, he looks at her and says, woman, this is your son. It's a term of affection. It's a term of endearment. He says, woman, you've got great faith. Circle those two words, great faith. That's important. That's important because there's only two times in the gospel accounts where he says you have great faith. And both of those times, guess who he attributes great faith to? Unclean Gentile dogs. If you go back to Jesus, uh, Jesus is doing that Jesus thing and there's a Roman centurion. He's got a, a, a servant who's ill and he sends his friends out to get to Jesus. Jesus is near his home and he says, Jesus, please come to the house and heal my servant. Jesus says, hey guys, let's ride, let's go, let's go. And as he gets closer to the house, the servant sends uh, people out to Jesus saying, wait, 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 I'm a Gentile, I'm unclean, but I'm a man of authority. When I say jump, they say how high? And so, Jesus, I'm putting myself under your authority. Just say the word and my servant is healed. And Jesus says, I've never seen such great faith in all of Israel. And he heals the Roman Roman centurion's servant. Then you've got this woman. Jesus heals her daughter. And what's cool, Jesus doesn't have to be there to heal either one. He's shown with, with uh, the feeding of the 5,000, with the raising of the widow's son in Nain, that he has, uh, he has authority over the, spiritual wor- or the, the physical world. He has authority over death itself. And now he casts out demons without even being there. He's got authority over the spiritual realm. Jesus applauds her. He applauds her wit. He honors her faith. And we can't miss this point. Jesus always honors faith that simply seeks grace. Jesus always honors faith that simply seeks grace. She says, I've got nothing to offer. I know my lot in life, okay. I'm, I'm not Jewish. I can't sit right at the table. But Jesus, you got enough grace. Please let me in. Heal my kid. Give us free. The insiders, they're all about the law leads to pride and arrogance. They're not fit for the table because they don't admit that they've got junk in their life. But she does. Jesus, give us free. Now remember our main point. There's no obstacle too big for Jesus to give us free. So I always want to make sure that we can uh, take this information and apply it to our lives so it's transformation. So let me close with four main points. We're going to blow through these pretty quickly. Main point number one. The master's table is wide, beautiful, and messy. 
The master's table, the, the master's table, the table of Jesus is wide, it's beautiful, it's messy. Jesus said, enter through the narrow gate. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. It's not all roads lead to God. It's only one path that leads to God, and it's through Jesus. But Jesus says, it's open to anybody. I just need you to get on your knees and come to me. And my table is wide, and it's messy. And it's messy because he wants to meet you and me right where we are, no matter what's going on in our life. But he wants to take us to another level. And that journey, that's messy but it's beautiful. So that's it. Number one, the master's table is wide, beautiful, and messy. Number two, life transformation begins with grace. Life transformation begins with grace, not repentance. My fellow evangelical friends, don't, don't try to get me excommunicated. Pastor Brian Loritz, go with me on this, said this about grace. He says that grace stimulates repentance. Repentance does not stimulate grace. And what he means is that grace is not performance-based. We should want to repent from our sins, to turn away from our sins because of the beauty and amazing part of God's grace. That should cause us to repent. Repent, it's a military term. It means to do an about-face from the junk in your life, to confess to God, hey, I got this junk in my life, please help me. To make amends with others around you whom you've harmed, to just step forward walking arm in arm with Jesus. Life transformation begins with grace, then repentance, and then a daily walk with Jesus. Number three, and this is, if you have a challenge for the week, this would be a great challenge. We must always approach Jesus with humility and not pride. We must always approach Jesus with humility, not pride. Let's talk about that. Humility says, I don't deserve your grace, but give it to me on the basis of your goodness. Pride says, I deserve your grace. Give it to me on the basis of my performance. Humility says, Jesus bigger, me smaller. Pride, pride says, me bigger, Jesus smaller. Humility is all about selflessness. Pride, pride's all about selfishness. Humility says, Jesus, I, I, I can't repay you for what you have done. Please, can I still come to the table? Pride says, Jesus, you owe me for what I've done. I deserve a seat at that table. C.S. Lewis would, would say these words about humility. He would say, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less Jesus would agree. He would say, he who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself, he will be exalted. Humility has us understand that he is God and we are not. And therefore, he's under no obligation, no moral obligation to answer our prayers the way we think he should in a timeline in which we think he should. And we have to remember that he has a vantage point that we can't see. And we may not understand what's going on in our lives. But he simply wants us to humble ourselves and come to him and trust in him for his good and perfect will. Okay, last but not least, number four. The story points to the believability of the Bible. The story points to the believability of the Bible. Go with me on this. I need a couple minutes with this. 
Of the 35 recorded miracles in the Bible, at least six that I could count and when I was preparing the sermon, at least six are directly involved or directly involved women. Uh, there are countless others that, that uh, indirectly involve women, but I came up with six off the top of my head. Uh, healing of Peter's mom-in-law, the hunchback woman who was 18 years uh, hunched over and Jesus heals her on the Sabbath. There's a menstruating woman, a, a Jewish woman who's now unclean. She spent all of her life on her life, sa- or spent all of her life savings to, to get healthy and she approaches Jesus as an unclean Jewish woman and says, if I can only touch the hem of his robe, I'm gonna be free. There's the raising of the dead from the widow of Nain, her son. There's this Canaanite Syrophoenician woman story. There's Mary and Martha, whose brother Lazarus is raised from the dead. What's my point? In that time, women had no rights. They had no social status at all. And so in that time, a woman could not even be used in a court of law as an evidence if she witnessed anything. She didn't have that right. We're talking about the believability of the Bible. In Jesus' time, and in the genre of literature of that time, you would never write a story that would have a woman as a hero. It just wouldn't sell books. You would never write a story about a woman with a demon-possessed child trying to take down any obstacle to get to Jesus, yelling, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You would never have a woman be the first person Jesus sees in his resurrected state. It wouldn't sell books. You wouldn't write that in the story unless it's true. Folks, Jesus consistently treated women with love, dignity, honor, and respect. And let me just address the men right now. We're called to be kingdom men. We're called to raise our sons and our grandsons to mentor other men, young and old alike, to treat women with dignity, honor, love, and respect. There would not even be a hashtag Me Too movement if we did that. Men, stand up and man up and let's keep doing that. Let's start doing this. Treating them with love, dignity, honor, and respect. I guess that's for another sermon and another time. All right, one last thing. Here's an extra. Timothy Keller said these words about this story in his commentary that wraps it up so well. He said, For the dog to become a child at the master's table, the master's son had to become a dog to be cast away and nailed to the cross. It's the story of the gospel. Bad things made good through Jesus who loves us. Jesus is slammed up on the cross. The epitome of clean. Everything about Jesus is clean. And he goes to the cross to take on the uncleanliness of this world. To take on our uncleanliness, our sin, past, present, and future. And the beauty is he takes that on. He dies, he's buried, he's resurrected. And now when we receive Jesus as our Savior and Lord, he takes up residence inside of us. And when God looks at us, he doesn't see unclean. He sees clean, bad things, made good through Jesus, who loves us, who simply calls us to come to him, to praskineo, throw ourselves on our knees and say, Jesus, give us free. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. 
We love you and we thank you. I pray that the words you gave me uh, were handled well. I pray that they've landed on the hearts of those who needed to hear this message today. We thank you for your grace. And God, we pray that you help us this week. As we step out from this church, if we, when we step out away from our devices, from our TVs, that we approach you with humility and trust and that we step into the lives of others to point them to you, to reflect your goodness, to, protect, to, to, to reflect your love, your dignity, your honor, and your grace. Please help us, Jesus. Give us free. In Jesus' name, amen.